What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. Welcome to the 22nd episode of The Crossroads, a weekly financial show for our generation. And for the listeners, welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. We've got a special guest for today's episode. Carl Richards is the author of The Behavior Gap, which is a book that highlights simple ways to stop doing dumb things with money. His sketches have been featured weekly in the New York Times since 2010. He's a certified financial planner, and I'm really excited for today's episode. And we appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us today, Carl. Oh, my pleasure. Super excited to be here. Of course. Uh, and before we dive into the meat of the episode, a selfish question, because I'm just curious, um, how did the New York Times role come about? Like, were you publishing just sketches kind of like into the void and someone found them or yeah. did you apply or I'm just really curious how that happened? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's actually applicable, especially to sort of your readers and or listeners in terms of you know, what am I going to do with my career and how are things working? And I look, I, I turned 50 this year, so I'm not of your generation, even though I still think I am. But um, and I still don't know what I'm going to do for a living, you know, like and and how the um, how the times thing happened is a really good example, because I like I didn't I didn't take any writing classes in, and I certainly as would be evident, anybody who's seen my work didn't take any art classes in school. And I just had this thing that I wanted to do and I couldn't stop doing it. Like I tried, it felt like an addiction. Like I tried to stop, you know, multiple times. And the thing was take a subject that somebody finds as complex and make it simple. And it happened to be that my job at the time was in finance. So the questions I, were, I was getting were about money. It doesn't really matter to me that it's about money. It just happened to be where I was. The process is what matters. And that's taking something that feels really complex and trying to dive into it, understand all the nuance, and then come out the other side. So I think of it as the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And then create a simple artifact for that, which we happen to call a sketch. So I was doing that. Uh, you know, despite having a great job, like I was doing that and releasing them online and I'd get questions from friends or clients and I would say, oh, that's a good subject. So I do that. And I swear, like my mom and my sister were the only ones reading it. And I, I found out later that my sister was lying. So I'm pretty sure it was <laughs> just, just my mom for a very long time. And then one day, um, it felt like out of the blue, like I got an email from the New York Times. I have the email. I say in every keynote presentation I give, I show the email because people don't believe me. I found out later and the Times email was, hey, I love these. Would you do them for us? And I knew enough sort of to say yes and figure it out later. But I found out later that um, 
and I'm blanking. Oh, Kent, Kent. I know Kent's name because I try to send him a gift every year. Some guy named Kent was reading the pieces with my mom and my sister, and he sent them to the editor at the Times. And and pure luck, like pure luck. I know, like I'm now, I know my editor then and now, I know how many emails it gets. Mm-hmm. These kind of emails, like, hey, this would be great for your you know, readers. Hundreds and hundreds a day. Like the fact that he opened it and then decided to click the link and then decided to reply, I can only subscribe to luck. And I'm totally a fan of that. Like so cool with luck. So that's how it happened was just, I was doing work in public and I got hit. Yeah, you were 100% right with like, that's perfect with our audience because I mean, a lot of it, a lot of our audience is creators and it's like, you never know who's consuming your content that isn't interacting with it or liking it or replying to it. It's just like, you never know. And just like that, that idea of just creating because it's what you enjoy doing. It's like providing value in some form and not trying to do it just to go viral or do anything like that. Um, that's a, I love that story. Would that's it be awesome. okay if I just comment on that real quick? Cause this is yeah. so important. I don't want to derail us from, this is the more important subject to be honest, but um, <laughs> I, I think a couple of things, like we know for sure that nothing will happen if you don't do the work in public. We know that. We have no idea what will happen if you do, but I'm a big fan of this idea of like increasing your luck surface area. Yep. Right. So just, uh, and I think of it as playing in traffic. Like it, it, I just like, there's no way to get hit if I don't play in traffic. I'm not sure that I will get hit if I do, but I know I won't if I don't. And then the other thing I would, I, I have found useful for myself is to, Stop even worrying. Like, in fact, I wrote a column for the Times called You're Fired. And in it, I, I fired myself and everybody else from the job of deciding if your, your content was any good. Like, that's no longer your job. You're fired. Like, you thought you had that job. You don't. Sorry, you're out. Like, your only job is to create the stuff and put it in the world. Your job is not to decide if it's good. Because mm-hmm. I can't tell you the number of times where... This, this experience repeated so often that it became a rule for me was I would come in on a Thursday morning and the dead, you know, my deadline was like Thursday at 10 or noon or something. I'd, I'd like have nothing. I'm just like, oh, this is terrible. Like, surely this is going to be the last piece I ever do for them. And I would send it in and I would get back like, this is great. I'm so excited about this one. And I was just like, what? And then they would post it and that one would do really well. And then I, I'd have the opposite experience where I was like, I am one, this is the best thing I've ever written. This is going to, you know, whatever go viral. I hate, I can't, I can barely even get those words out of my mouth, but like it, it, this is going to be great. And it'd be crickets. Like the editors wouldn't care the, the, like the, the social media department wouldn't care. And so I've had that experience so often that I've decided like, I don't know, like the job is one thing create what I want to create. And for me, this isn't universally true, but for me, the more it's me, the better, because it's like all I have. Mm -hmm. So if I try to be a little bit like Jack Butcher, like I I, I lose, right? If Jack tries to be a little bit like me, he, he would lose. So 
if I try to be a little bit like James Clear and write like these amazing, well-researched, long books, mm-hmm. no, it's be more yourself. So to me, like the solution to competition is become the only thing that you're the only one of in the world, which is you. Like, and just go all in. Lao Tzu said, uh, Lao Tzu, what was the quote? So good. It's like, be yourself and go all the way. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's enough riffing on that, but that's that's probably my favorite subject. So thanks for asking. Of course. No, I, I absolutely love that. I think, I mean, we just talk so much about building in public and how, you know, the resume is gone and the new future is personal branding and why you, how much better it makes you to be sharing what you learn and documenting all of the things that you're doing. So we're all aboard on that. But topic for today, I think having you, you just, uh, we talked about like, you are the best at really explaining topics in a way that makes sense. And the one that we thought would be really great to do today is just talking about like, what does real financial planning look like? Because I think this is almost the hurdle for most people of going from, I don't work with an advisor to I work with an advisor is they don't even know what the job is. They think it's the same as 30 years ago, where you have an asset manager that just manages your investments. You talk to them maybe once a year, see what it is, but what does real financial planning look like today? And then we're going to run through this and ask questions that are directly from my clients. Sure. So I should, I should caveat number one, I reserve the right to be totally wrong about everything I'm going to say. <laughs> right. Cause I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the answer for everyone. I, I just know what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, real financial planning is about aligning your, so if you think like I I'm, I've done a lot of art on the radio. So just think of a Venn diagram, think of two circles drawn on a piece of paper with a gap between them. So there's a space between these two circles. And one of the circles is labeled your use of capital. And next to capital, put a little asterisk. And then down below, right, the asterisk will be time, money, energy, and attention. So there's four sources of capital, right? Time, money, energy, and attention. So your use of capital, all of those kinds of cap, time, money, energy, and attention is in one circle. The other circle, it just says what's important to you. You could put your values if you want, but I kind of like what's important to you. Mm-hmm. And so I think of financial, real financial planning is the alignment of those two things. So there's a gap for almost all of us all the time. There's some gap between those two circles. Every once in a while, they start to overlap a little bit. You're like, oh, geez. I mean, I remember when there was a perfect overlap and it was actually just looked like one circle, but it was two. And it was one time in my life, I remember Christmas Eve, like the whole family around, the dogs on the couch, we're having a chat, like my use of time, energy, money, and attention was perfectly aligned that night with what's important to me, my family. Mm -hmm. But then I woke up the next morning, there was all these presents and I was like, who spent all this money? And suddenly the circles moved apart again. And that process of continually realigning, and it's like a garden, you know, the moment you get it totally weeded you know, like you walk inside and the next weed is growing. So it's a continual process of aligning your use of capital. So that can show up in spending, can show up in how you save. It can show up like your investments should match you. What you say is important to you, your career choices, your decision to pay off the mortgage or not pay off the mortgage can be run through that filter. For some people, paying off the mortgage is the right answer. For some people, it's the wrong answer, depending on use of capital and what you say is important to you and your station in life. So short answer is 
Real financial planning is the alignment of your use of capital with what you say is important to you. I love so, that. I do too. So how does like the mathematical decisions come into play then? So if we're talking about like, hey, you know, my life was really important to me is spending time with my family, like being there for my kids when they're young, building a, you know, a great home and obviously being able to provide for them. So then like, how does Roth IRAs and 401ks and how does that all come into play and tax planning come into play to the core of those are the things that I want? Yeah. So those are all really important tactical decisions. And, and so I would think of like, if you think we're like building a pyramid maybe, and the foundation would be some simple statement. I like to call it, and I like to think this is going to become an industry standard. I have no idea, but that everybody should have a statement of financial purpose. Yep. Right. And that's that foundation for me, it hasn't really changed, which I'm not suggesting it won't change, but it hasn't. Interestingly, it's time with my family, mainly outside and serving in my church and my community. That's at the foundation of my thing. So that's my statement of financial purpose. So if you, if you said what, you know, like if, if you were my financial planner, we would start there and it would be pretty easy for you to move one layer up to these things we call goals. And the goals, like you don't just have a goal. It doesn't just come out of thin air. The goals should be, should be informed by what you said about your purpose. And if you want any, like, if anybody wants to go deep on this, go read like Simon Sinek, start with why, you know, there's getting really clear about a sense of purpose. So you could say to me, the goal is like, oh, Carl, time with your family, mainly outside. Let's put a little framework around that. What does that actually mean? Like how much time? What would the conditions need to be in, a, in order for you to have that time? Like you want to coach your daughter's football, soccer team? What needs to happen? You know, and then, then we can keep rolling up like, okay, I need to make this much and we're saving this much. And then, then we, then as we keep rolling up, we go from, from what I refer those, the bottom two rungs I think of as the plan, right? Then we roll up into process and process starts to get a little tactical. Like, oh, you should definitely max out your match on your 401k before you start funding a Roth. Maybe you believe that, Right because that's free money. So, okay, let's tactically, let's do that. All right, let's dive into how that money's invested, right? And then we get into process, we get into product, which the product is like what our industry, industry speaking largely is known for, but it's the least important part of the whole thing. Like it actually doesn't matter at all because one product can be fantastic for somebody and a disaster for somebody else, the same product. Yeah. But it doesn't matter at all if we don't have the context. So that's how I think about it is, is before we get tactical, we've got to understand why we're doing it. Yeah. And, and almost no one, like one of my favorite questions these days, just like for fun is, you know, meet somebody on the ski lift and get a conversation. They figure out what I do. And they say something about money. And I say, one of my favorite questions is just to say, why, why is your money invested the way it is? You know, like the only right answer is, that's based on my values and goals, but I've never had anybody give me that answer. Like normally it's like, well, I read about it on the financial pornography network or <laughs> my, my brother-in-law mentioned it or the really smart people whisper quietly. And they say, I read about it in the economist, you know, like that, that that's not the right answer. The right answer is this, the, this, this portfolio gives me the greatest chance of meeting these goals, which were informed by what's important to me.
Yeah. And I think if you unravel what you're saying, like, you know, the one you talked about, like spending time with your family outside. So if you start there and then your next thought is, well, how do like, what does that look like? Okay. Well, maybe that means we go on two vacations a year. We like to ski for one of them and we like to go somewhere warm for one of them. Great. What does that cost? Okay. Here's here's how much it's going to cost for us to get there. But tactically still based on a lot of these other important things to us about providing for kids education and retirement and stuff. We have to do these other no brainers first. So then, or however you think of it, great. Now we need to make this amount of income and have to have this amount of money to contribute, to do these things that are really important for our mission. That's exact. That like, that is exactly the process that most people don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like you, that process is, right? Teaching, showing somebody, helping somebody uncover their goals is completely different than saying, what are your goals? I would have never walked into that. I want to go on two two vacations, one to the warm and one to the thing. I would have been like, I don't know. Like, I I don't know what my goals are. Stop asking me. How come everybody asks me? Well, I don't know what my utility bills are going to be 17 and a half years from now. Stop asking me. Like, that's the feeling people get when they want to go meet with a financial planner. Instead, what we do is we say, oh, let me show would it be okay, Thomas, if we put a little framework around what you just said? Mm-hmm. And when we're done, we'll call that a goal, right? And we can keep diving deep. So we've shown them what goals are. That's, that's to me, is the way to think about it. And then, of course, you go out and find the right strategy, tactic, and product to populate that plan, right? Not the, not the other way around. So that's, yeah, how I, I- that's how I think about those things. I think what I found is that like that part of the goals is actually one of the most impactful parts of our job, because I think so many people come in and, and I used to do this. I used to say, what are your goals? And they would say, buy a house, retire at 55, own some rental properties. Like, and, and then you just peel it back and realize that every goal they just said was something somebody else told them was a good idea. None of them were even remotely personal to them and what they want. And there's been, I've probably had, I'd say a quarter of my clients, I've had them unravel from, we're going to buy a house in the next year to all they wanted was to have a little bit more space. They, but they didn't know if they wanted to stay in the, the location they want. They didn't want to take care of the house. They, you know, that all of the other things that came with it, their goal was really about, we just feel like we're kind of tight and we want to have a little bit more space yeah. to be able to be with our family. And that's just one example. But like, I think when you go through these deep questions. And one thing I always use, I always just say like, why, or tell me more about that. And yeah. actually I got that from you, to be honest, because I realized that, you know, if you speak too quick and just go with what they're saying, most of the time they haven't even thought past the, here's my idea of the goal, but they don't understand why, what it provides, would it make it better or worse? And part of our job is taking them through that whole thought process so they can refine and realize truly what they do and don't want first. Yeah. It, look, they're, they're like, that is fact. You know what I mean? Like the idea that we don't know is just, and the research is pretty cool. A lot of the interesting stuff Rene Girard's work around mimetic desire is really, really cool. Like we don't know what we want. We look to other people from the youngest age. We look to other people and we, we mimic them Yeah. from the youngest age. Like we don't know what we want. And so now it's even worse because we've got access to the, the never ending wanting machine, Instagram. Yeah. And so we, we, we don't know. So getting, it turns out that that circle over there that we're like, oh, that's the easy circle. What's important to you. Turns out that's the hard circle. 
right? And I think real financial planning is also giving ourselves all permission to realize we don't know. And it's easy just to say like, guess, we're going to be wrong. You're going to be wrong about the goals. You're going to be wrong about the inheritance. You're going to be wrong about your income. You're going to be wrong about, I'm going to be wrong about taxes and inflation. We just don't know how and by what amount yet. And so the key is to just realize, like, stop with the myth that we can generate a two-inch thick book that's got a 30-year plan that's going to actually look like reality and start recognizing that the plan's an important start, but real financial planning is more about being less wrong tomorrow than it is about being precisely right today. And if we can give ourselves permission to realize that that's just called, that's just called reality, what the literature calls it is an adapt, a complex adaptive system. It's what we live in. There's no, there's no way around it. It would be cute if I could tell you what the next 30 years of your life are gonna look like, or even the next six months. And if you doubt this, go back to January of 2000. Like, so, sorry, 2020. What, what, were your, what were your three month plans in January of 2020? And then go to March and tell me, <clears throat> excuse me, tell me if your life looked anything like what you'd planned. So as soon as we can get comfortable with that, we lean into the idea that financial, real financial planning is an adaptive, complex problem that's constantly adjusting and course correcting because we're dealing with humans and we don't know. And then we can give like your listeners, clients, prospective clients, but we can all give ourselves permission to say, don't know. But I'll be here. Turns out a real, a real financial planner's real job is to be really good at helping people make decisions with incomplete information. And there's no amount of analysis. I don't care what Michael Kisses says. There's no amount of analysis that would, I'm recording with him next. So anyway, it's fun to joke about. But there's no, for those who don't know, Michael Kisses is a really, really amazing financial planner who has 17 designations behind his name. And is it, if anybody can analyze something, Kitsis can. There's no amount of analysis that will give us all the information we need to make a perfect decision about the future. Yeah. So as it becomes available, we want to be able to adapt. And so a financial planner really is about saying, hey, I got your back. We're generally headed this direction. And if as things come up that we didn't anticipate, we'll get together real quick. It doesn't make us wrong. It makes us human. We'll get together and we'll figure out what to do. Sometimes that's often, sometimes that's once a year, sometimes it's once every five years. Who knows? I like to think of it as like, what do you do when the plan blows up? Yeah. Because the plan's always blowing up. Mm -hmm. And that's not meant to be negative. It's just always changing and morphing. So hopefully that helps. It does. And I think one question that comes about a lot from consumers is, okay, I, great, now I get it. I get I, having a financial advisor, getting a plan in place is important, but why would I continue to work with an advisor after I have that plan in place? Because I feel like there's so much emphasis here of like that plan. Like you get that plan in place, you know, both you're doing your Roth IRAs, we're gonna max our 401k. When, you know, this happens with your options, this is when you're gonna sell. And they think that, boom, I'm done. And I've had clients express this and be like, great, we got a ton of work done, but now it feels like the next six months, I'm not going to have very much to do. Like, can I just stop being a client and then come back later? And I want to help reinforce and teach people of why the ongoing 
part is so important. And it's not just like, I'm going to work with Thomas. And then two years later, something comes up, I'm going to go work with trade. And then two years later, I'm going to go work with TJ or, or whatever. And then every time you're trying to face this one problem with an advisor who doesn't actually know the whole situation of what's going on. And you can't just really focus there because you have to bring everybody up to speed or, or why, what really value is that ongoing relationship? Yeah. I, I think about it as the difference between having a really good map and having a guide and, and a guide will use a really good map. And, and then the one thing we have to change too is like the actual landscape is changing all the time. So the map that you had yesterday actually doesn't represent the landscape today. So you've added in a whole nother layer here. Like imagine thinking that because I have a map of this territory, I don't need a guide anymore. And then I go out the first day and the map doesn't look like the territory anymore. So to me, it, it, it's just simply understanding you're not engaged. Finance, a financial plan is worthless without the ongoing process of planning. And that's a little strong, like maybe it's worth something, but it's pretty close to worthless because it, it won't represent reality tomorrow because we live in it. We've been, finan we've been doing financial plans as if we lived in a static environment. And the same thing with business plans, by the way, and, and family plans and personal plans. Like we don't live in a static environment. The landscape is literally changing underneath our feet all the time. And that landscape is you, your life, your employment, the markets, the investment markets, the economy, your health, like your goals, your family, like that's the landscape. Well, that landscape is constantly changing. And so that's why it's important to, and you're not, it's really interesting. Like people think, and we did this, the industry to your listeners, like the industry did this to you. Like we trained you that it was the product that mattered. And if it's, and, and financial plans became a product from the industry perspective. So we trained you that that's, that's what mattered. And it turns out that that's just wrong. That what actually matters is the ability to course correct and make important decisions. And the other thing that's really important here is to understand that little decisions compounded over, you know, five years, a decade, 20, 30 years make huge differences down the road. So it's these constant little course corrections. And the only other comparison I like to use too many metaphors in one answer would be taking off from Los Angeles in a plane with the destination being Boston, right? If you're, if you're just barely off course when you're over Nevada, like if I took off in LA and I'm, I'm over Nevada and I, I just am barely off course, like barely off course, you know, I could end up in Florida. And so writing out the flight plan is really important. In fact, I started asking every pilot I knew and every pilot I ran into, how often do you write a detailed flight plan? And the answer was always, like always, every flight. And then the second question I started asking was, how often does the flight go according to the plan? And the answer was never. Right? There's constantly little course corrections. And I think that's much closer to our lives than like 
I'll buy a product, I'll do this thing for 30 years. There are certainly some default answers, right? Spend less than you make, save the difference in an S&P 500 index fund, you know, max out your 401k. Like if you did those things, you'd probably be better off than 90% of the world. But financial planning is one level ahead of that, which is just trying to align these things with what we say is important to us. And that's a constantly changing landscape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think a good example too here that I use with some people is like working out. So you get a workout plan, a workout plan's great. Two weeks later, you get injured and you no longer can run. So now how does my workout plan go? Okay. Now I'm back to it. I move. I have a new gym that has different equipment. What do I do? Okay, great. Now my job changed. I can no longer do five days a week. I can do three. How does that change what I do? And then maybe that works for a little bit while for a while. And then you decide, oh, hey, great. You know, now I'm going to buy a Peloton. Like, how does that build into my program? And so it's great to have this initial plan, but then all of these different things come that deviate and change your plan. And it's, you're still have the same goal in mind, but it's how do we continue to change as the landscape changes? Yeah. I got to comment on that real quickly because it's one of my favorite examples too. And it's because physically, you know, with any goal in mind, like, let's just say my goal is to be fit enough to move quickly through the mountains with my two daughters who move very, very fast for a very long time through the mountains. So like my goal is just to keep up with my daughters. Well, I'm a dynamic, adaptable system. And the input that worked for me for three or four weeks or three or four months may no longer be having the impact, but the input for me is going to be dramatically different for you. So my favorite book on this is called Building the, the Elite. And it was um, two guys that trained special operators. And they, they were like, because, you know, it's you can do fine in the gym with the Peloton program if you won't die, if it doesn't work. Right. Like, but once once the consequences are as high as life and death, you start to realize, like, it turns out this is a complex adaptive system and systems thinking and complexity theory are actually far more important than what product we use. And it's the same thing. So their book, right? Like the first six pages have not, first six chapters have almost nothing to do with actual training model. They're all about understanding complex adaptive systems. And when you understand that, all this other stuff becomes cute. Like that's cute that we thought we could do that. Yeah. Right. And then you are start to understand the real value right? The real value is this ongoing course, changing the stimulus, doing things slightly different. That becomes massively valuable if you want to operate at a high level. Yeah. And I love your, like, like the example of from LA to Boston of how you're just a little bit off and what it can do. And, you know, I was just thinking about this, like you could have a client who they're spending less than they make. They're not incurring bad debt. They're, you know, you're doing everything right but their main investment is their 401k and they thought they were picking a fund that targeted growth, but they were in one growth fund that's down 30% over five years. Like the trajectory of your entire future off one small thing can drastically change because you didn't know to look for that question. You were misinformed about something or many, or, or many other reasons. And I just love that example of how you can do a lot of things right, but one small thing wrong that you didn't even know to think about. And that could ultimately completely change the trajectory of you hitting your goals in the future that you want. Yeah. And I think just one thing on that, that's important is you don't hire, you do not hire a financial planner because you're stupid, right? You don't hire a financial planner because you couldn't do it yourself. You don't hire a financial planner because the products are technically complicated or a problem. I mean, there is some truth to all of those things, but that's not why you hire one because they're not you. 
And like, I'm really, really good with other people's money. <laughs> I'm terrible with my own, like, because I have blind spots that I didn't know I have. They're by yeah. definition, a blind spot. I can't see my own. It doesn't matter how good I am at seeing other people's. I can't see my own. So our financial planner is amazing. And she said to me like three weeks into our attire, this is a new one. She said to me, she's like, she literally said to me, she knows my work really well. So she's always quoting me back to myself. But she said to me, the fact that you thought you were the right person for this job, this job of financial planner for the Richards family, the fact that you thought you were the right person is hilarious, right? Because how are you to know that the blind spots, like, oh my gosh, did you hear what your wife just said in this meeting? That's like, I remember thinking, I've never heard that before. We've been married 26 years. Your answer to that question surprises me. That's the value, right? Like that's the value. Mm -hmm. And Thomas, I think you had, was this, that tweet today about like a financial advisor is, can also just act as a sounding board. Like you were saying, Carl, with like, you might be able to do it on your own and like manage everything just fine. But like an advisor is that just kind of accountability partner at the same time of like, do you think this is a good idea? Should I be doing this? And then an advisor can work through like the mathematical side, like work through the numbers and determine like what's the best decision by the numbers and then kind of help you like integrate that back into your life. And it starts with that very first kind of like the financial purpose statement. Like, well, you told me that you wanted to do this eight months ago and this decision right now, the way you're thinking about it doesn't really align with that thing. Like what's, has something changed or what, what's going on with this? And then it's a whole different conversation than just the numbers at that point. Yeah. It's so important to understand that, that, um, so like two things, one, it's just the truth. Like, and I don't, I'm not, look, I don't take clients. I'm not selling anything here. I don't like most people can't do this on their own. And it's not because of the complexity or the math. That's part of it. Like some people, we just don't have, it's just, it's just really like the human piece of it. Like the stories we tell ourselves, the tricks we play, falling prey to overconfidence or recency bias or confirmation bias. Like there's just like the list is endless of hurdles. It's a little bit like thinking you can show up to a gunfight with a knife and win, right? Like it's just, it's just, it's stacked against you, all of us individually. And then you add math and all of that on top of it, fine. And then you add another layer, which is we're not allowed to talk about money with anybody. So like, you can't talk about it. You got shame and you got blame and you've got your dad who said, don't be spoiled in your ear. Like you've got all these things you've got to unpack. Like it's a lot to unpack. So, um, and then, so to me, most people should have somebody that they can get help with. And it may be super simple. Pay off your credit card, match your 401k, call me in a year. You know, like it may be super simple and it may be more complex and more regular. And the other thing to remember is how many people, which you walk through beautifully, is how many people do you have that have permission to that space between what you said was important to you and your current actions, your use of capital. How many people have permission to enter that space when it's there's a gap? Like your spouse, I mean, look, there's a strong disincentive to not go there. A good friend, yeah, a spouse and a good friend, like maybe they do, but really having somebody that can go, hey, hey, and we told our financial planners, we're like, look, 
you, you might get fired for pointing out inconsistency in our behavior, but you would definitely get fired if you don't, right? We need you to enter that space. We need you to say, now I may be mad for a day or two when I get called on it, but I'll probably come around. And if you don't call me on it, I promise I'll, I'll fire you. You know what I mean? Like you've got to be drill sergeant. You got to point because that's what we want. It's somebody, that's why you hire a personal trainer. Like, Hey, what you told me. So anyway, I think that's really important to remember. It's really valuable to have somebody who has permission to enter that space and say, Hey, I'm not sure. Sometimes they do it with a punch in the nose and sometimes they do it with an empathetic hug, but it's like, I'm not sure that what you're thinking about doing matches what you told me. Did, did it change? What do we need to do here? So I think that's really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. Something that I've heard you talk about before too, which is interesting is I think some people's hesitation of working the advisor or something is like, what if I go to an advisor and they tell me everything I'm doing is right? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, that's good news, you know, and I, and, and I think Largely, I was just thinking back largely with most of my clients. I remember thinking like, gosh, you've done a really good job here. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you, 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 people are not dumb. And especially people who decide to engage with a financial planner. They've done some, generally they're doing something right. Even if it's just having the awareness to realize they want to make a change in a terrible situation. That's already like, wow, that's more than most people do. So I, I think the idea of realizing like, look, you've done a great job here. My job largely with my clients was always just to tweak around the edges. Yeah. It was like, look, we can make some small changes here. And primarily my job would be to avoid costly mistakes from here on out because it's the costly mistakes. You only get one a year, like, and you should have just kept your money under a mattress. You know what I mean? So it's the costly mistakes that we want to avoid. So tweaking around the edges, we all know small little tweaks over a long period of time make a big difference. It's that kind of thing. You should be happy if you run into a planner or advisor that, that figures out the things you've been doing right, helps you understand them, pours a little gas on that fire, shores up some other stuff that maybe you hadn't thought of. Like that's the nature of the business. That would be a good sign. Yeah. And I think the other side of it too is like, I mean, I know me, I'm always thinking like, oh, should I change these investments? Should I invest in a different crypto? Should I be doing, you know, my Roth IRA? Should I be doing my tax? Like, even though I know all the information, I still sit there and think through myself, like, is that what this other financial planner would do? Or is like, you know, is this the right thing to do? And we all have so much uncertainty in our life. And not that the other, like we can fully give certainty to other people, but just hearing you're doing things right should at least bring confidence to your to your life of things that you've been overanalyzing for such a long period of time. And knowing that a financial advisor thinks you're doing the right things really should make you feel better. For sure. No, I, I, I agree. And a good, a real, like a real, what I call a real financial planner, it won't be scared to tell you that. Yeah. They don't have to find something new for that year or something just yeah, to make it seem like they're doing enough. Yeah. The old school folks always was like, I'm going to dig a pit, throw the client into it and look down and say, I'm the only one with the rope. Uh, real, real financial planners are like, look, we're, we're, we're not so insecure that we need to find that stuff at all. It's like, look, I'm here just to 
optimize and help you add value and uh, sorry opt i'm just here to help you make really good decisions with your money and build on top of what you've already done yeah um any other questions from you trading um i don't think so i think this was an awesome conversation yeah, it, it was Carl. We really appreciate you giving some time to us again. Like I, I haven't even shared this story, but when I first started to begin to like learn about financial planning, somebody turned me to both of your books. And I remember I was on the way to Tennessee on like a mastermind group. And I listened to both of your audio books and basically everybody got like an hour to present about things that they were like, what our specialty was and we were learning. And I basically just talked about your entire book and how to like view money. And mm. I, I just like, it's one of the most memorable things I have in my life of just learning about finance. And I think I left there, listened to every podcast episode you've ever been on. And now three years later, having you come on ours is just like mm. such a cool thing. That's such, that's really, thank you. Like I, I, I'm being honest. This isn't like a nice thing that I say to people. Like I, I'm honored to be involved, right? Like, and that people, that the work can make some subtle difference in people's lives. It means the world to me. So thanks for having me. It's been a great and super good questions. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on and thanks everybody for listening. We will see you back again next week. 